Welcome to the Cedar Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 61st episode, we have on Melissa Vandenberg, who is a multimedia artist that explores a variety of different materials and thematic ideas about America, the Midwest, the Rust Belt, the idea of landscape, and the ways that she explores it through personal identity and material and found material is something that we talk about. And of course, about her studio work, evolution, and all of that stuff. But we also talk about her exhibition, Wish You Were Here, which opens up at SJ Projects this Wednesday, August 7th. So please be sure to check that out. If you've never heard of Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site that features a variety of contemporary artists that discuss their studio practice and evolution. We present some uh, slideshow images and this in-depth interview, and you can check them all out on studiobreak.com. You can easily access all of the old interviews that we have in our archive function right on the left sidebar, or you can go to the iTunes store, search for Studio Break on our podcast, or use the links provided and subscribe. We also have a Facebook page, so please like it and follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, so please go ahead and do that. I also have a Kickstarter project up right now called Remembering Place, so please go ahead and check it out if you want to find out more about me. All right, here is our interview with Melissa. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I am happy to be joined this morning, reunited with Melissa Vandenberg. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. How are you? I'm doing great, and uh, it's great to have you on to talk about all of your work. And, you know, as we were just discussing a lot of things, it's uh, it's always fun to learn about someone that you kind of know um, in one capacity, but you haven't really, you know, examined as thoroughly. So it's great to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for, for considering me and my work for the studio break. No problem. It's really exciting. And, um, you know, obviously uh, you have some shows coming up, so we want to talk a little bit about that. And, uh, the extent of how your work has evolved, but, you know, we always like to just get a background from, from people, get an idea of their upbringing. So could you talk a little bit about that, you know, where you're from and, sure, um, sure. you know, what some of those experiences were and maybe how they, you can see how they've impacted your work, uh, you know, with 2020 vision now. <laughs> oh, for sure. I was born and raised in the Detroit suburbs and did my undergraduate education there in at Center for Creative Studies, which is now called College for Creative Studies, and the Detroit landscape. My family being from that area and being educated there, I think really greatly frames my perspective on materials. I grew up appreciating the used things, you know, items with patina, um, with a little bit of residue of life to it. So I, I give Detroit a lot of credit for, for that respect. I did my Graduate work, as you well know, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale in sculpture. And that sort of continuing to be in the Midwest landscape directly influenced uh, several bodies of work that followed, one of which being called Middleland. I'm very influenced by kind of landlocked visuals of Americana. So that, that landscape in particular has played a big role, and I've purposely kind of loitered in this area of the country. Um, currently now I reside and teach in Richmond, Kentucky at Eastern Kentucky University. So I've tried to stay a little bit true as much as you can when you're on the academic job market, but I've tried to stay a little bit true to that vernacular and have now really appreciated being in what I call the early South. When you live in Kentucky and you say you're from the South, people from Ohio, of course, go, yeah, you're from the South. But people from Alabama go, no, Kentucky's not <laughs> right. the South. So there's this kind of fun identity thing that happens. Um, but I think I very much associate the, the products that I make with where I lived. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess that's kind of why I, why I describe it in reference to the landscape in that capacity. Not that I so much feel like a victim of my landscape, but I think it's undeniable to not kind of embrace those influences. You know, I know that you're from Detroit, and I, I, I think that might have been more on your CV or something like that. But in reading your artist statement, all of the things that you're talking about become really interesting because, you know, your work kind of engages all these landscapes that are kind of, I don't know, to lack of a better term, like almost feel like the heart of America, you know, and I guess that's because we call it the Midwest, but, you know, it's so uh, present in there, that that kind of patina, as you put it. So it's very interesting. Were you drawn to any particular mediums when you were growing up? um, Did you have a lot of experience, uh, you know, making things, creating things when you were younger? Um, I would say an okay amount of experience, not as much as, as some. Material-wise, I spent so much of my childhood traveling around with my parents to different antique stores and junk shops. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, going back to that whole discussion on patina, I found myself kind of having my own collections of things, whether the collections were vintage bowling pins or plastic Elias Brother big boys, like this idea of collecting and, and the used and kind of reappropriating materials and giving them a, a second breath, a second life. Um, that started pretty young. I also, you know, I'm, I'm from a household where my father fixed our cars, fixed our furnace. You know, my mom even made some of our clothes and our bedspreads and our curtains. So it was a very kind of do-it-yourself environment to come of age. In. And even if I wasn't always making from scratch myself, it kind of became second knowledge on, on how to, you know, work with wood or work with fabric. You know, textiles have been really important in my practice since I've been about 16 or 17 years old when I first said out loud that I wanted to be an artist. Um, I've always associated myself with that, but I, I give credit to my upbringing and kind of seeing those ways to problem solve. You know, you got a hole in your pants. I learned how to sew. Mm-hmm. The hole in my pants closed. Well, that carries over into the studio practice. You know, I didn't didn't really want to reinvent the wheel, but I think that carries some really beautiful domestic qualities with it that can create nice conversations about the world we live in and the objects we operate with. It's very easy to forget that sometimes in a, in a gallery setting. One of the things that I think school for me made me think of is just the way that you're always looking at it in this white cube. Yeah. And, and I think that the artwork that I'm drawn to the most really kind of is imbued with some sense of uh, experience in that, you know, or or something that is a part of you. And so I think that's something that really kind of comes through as you look at the work. But in terms then of, of uh, you know, pursuing it as a, a career choice, how, how did that come about when you, I guess, made the decision, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go into the arts? Um, I was really probably lucky and kind of abnormal. I'm first-generation college and the first one of my, my family to get a four-year degree, let alone go on for a master's. We were, you know, your kind of average family in a very rich county in Michigan. We lived in Oakland County, which had a lot of tax dollars. This is a county right outside Wayne County, which is where Detroit's located. And in Detroit, they canceled a lot of the art programs, a lot of the music programs, all, all those things, which is pretty typical for that kind of urban environment and distress. And I'm saying this with Detroit's recent bankruptcy on my mind and, and everything. Sure. Um, but in Oakland County, you know, 15, 20 minutes away, you had in the high schools every kind of art class you could, you could want. I got to take not just a general art class, but I got to take jewelry and watercolor and CAD 
and video and art history and photography and theater and choir and music and, and so on and so on. So I directly credit sort of, you know, being the average kid, economically speaking, coming of age in a very well-to-do neighborhood and a well-to-do neighborhood that had enough diversity to be interesting um, and stimulating to me as well. So having access to those kind of things, I mean, you and me spoke personally earlier about how important it is for kids to have access to to cultural experiences, to art-making experiences, and I was so grateful to have that. And of course, it took until later in life to look back and go, actually, you know, when I decided to be a, a professional maker was high school. And I think that's rare. I think a lot of people come through it by transferring programs, or it takes them a while to give themselves permission to do that. And I'm just grateful enough that, you know, I had a supporting enough family and a supporting enough environment financially that I could make that decision without worrying about the economic um, consequences of that at a young age. The, the way that the, you know, arts are impacted in, in certain areas um, in the city versus, you know, in the suburbs. And I, I think that's all very appropriate and apparent and something that has to be supported. Again, you know, we, I've talked about this with a number of guests, but the, the way that education needs to be valued in terms of people exploring, you know, these creative endeavors, I mean, really are ultimately something that feeds back into culture and creates all sorts of uh, exciting things for people to come see. The arts are obviously very important. And I think, again, it's it's one thing that makes me think, too, about the work, back to this idea of, uh, you know, growing up outside of Detroit. I mean, you know, some something that was so much an example of what the American dream is, you know, or oh, at least sure. yeah. was, you know. So, I mean, even just kind of having it... Having it go from from Detroit and Southern Illinois is a very interesting thing because we're talking about places geographically that have all of this promise built into it, and yet, you know, your work kind of explores almost where they're at now, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Like I even I think about Detroit's history with the assembly line and my own interest in multiples. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't tend to make one of something; I tend to make many, and and that sort of. Um, multiplicity has been a, a really big ongoing interest. You, you make the connection to, to Illinois. Um, if I can add, I'd, I'd even point out that Henry Ford, when he was growing his automotive um, brand and needed more assembly line workers, he sent people down to Kentucky, pretty much where I'm living now, to recruit Appalachian folk to come up and work the assembly line. So I kind of I'd almost like to throw in there's like this reverse immigration that's happened because now I'm in Kentucky. I'm a Detroiter in Kentucky. I've gone back the other way. To right, Latin. right. Um, but I like that that connectivity that's that's there, and it, and it takes living in a space to know it and appreciate it to any degree. Um, but uh, you know, I, I digress. I'm back on the on the landscape topic. I know. I hear you. <laughs> well, so how how did that influence your your work when you were an undergrad? Were you kind of conscious of this or, you know, what, what types of uh, work were you exploring? The multiples really came to a head when I was an undergrad. It was something that began to mature then and that I would carry forward to, to work and try and understand a form instead of just doing one and moving on, but deciding to commit and do many. And I'm not talking about uh, the seriality of, of a body of work. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of one singular piece, maybe containing a thousand forms um, repeated. I think that has a great deal to do with the Detroit landscape for me. It was what I was surrounded by, not just with the faculty that were mentoring me, but a lot of my peers in the program. Um, 
so much of the Detroit aesthetic is is tangled up in I hate to say it, but in tangled up in kind of a in ruin porn that's so popular now around the world. You know, we spent so much time traveling around viewing different um, abandoned buildings and, and brownfields and, and parts of the landscape that would, of course, you'd take back into the into the studio. Um, I found myself appreciating voids and negative space more and minimalism and dirt and using paint devoid of color, paint just with charcoal and white. Um, and I think that has, you know, a direct uh, connection to the, the Detroit circumstance um, for sure. And I, I would have to extend the credit to a lot of the people I studied with um, that challenged me so much. You know, I was a suburban kid that, that this was a whole new experience being in an, such an urban environment and such a unique urban environment, one that is in this constant struggle for renaissance, um, but seems to, to also be in a constant state of decay simultaneously. Um, despite the great creative energy and artists that are still working there right now. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think it does. And I think, you know, it, it, it almost kind of goes back to that idea, too, of teaching. I mean, I think that especially there is, you know, I think everybody, that that cliche idea of everybody has a story to tell. Like, I think that that's completely true. I think people kind of need ways to be creative, even if it means something slightly different for other people. There's a there's an art to, to doing things rigorously. And I think that that's something that is very wrapped up in a lot of this as well, you know, to, to really kind of take the time to explore something with, with a level of integrity as well what what mediums did you you know explore at the time material wise ccs does a did a wonderful job with its kind of curriculum design it making sure you surveyed everything my bachelor's is a bachelor in fine arts it does not technically have a concentration beyond the fine arts concentration but i would consider myself a sculptor who happens to draw and paint you take pictures a lot um so regular media for me then of course were textiles um, but I've always been really interested in wood, working with wood. And I also did a lot of foundry work. So those were my first days with um, casting bronze and aluminum and working with iron for the first couple of times and kind of being seduced by the fire and brimstone that goes along with a foundry practice. Mm-hmm. And again, being in a, in a Rust Belt city like Detroit, you know, the, the two kind of go hand in hand and, and you feel that in the, in the material that you're working with. Um, but I also drew and paint, painted a lot. Well, and I guess the other thing that makes me wonder, too, is uh, is photo- photographs something that you've always used as a, a resource in terms of exploring, you know, your subjects? Going to school in an area that was rich in tax dollars mm-hmm. for my high school education, I got to take darkroom photography about five times there. Um, so, you know, I was I was really familiar with the, with the darkroom process when... And, I was actually accepted to CCS based on a photo portfolio at first, but um, ended up reapplying a year after um, and entered my sophomore year um, because I wanted to go the sculptural route. And I didn't have a portfolio at that time that reflected that. But photography has been something that I've returned back to constantly. Um, I think the immediacy of it, um, there's a gratification that I get because of, a, I guess, a personal lack of patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of makers could compare themselves with that. Sometimes I feel like I lack any patience. Um, and photography is really something that can test those limits for me. Um, 
and pull me back and make me see things in a slightly different perspective. So it's something that I've returned to time and time again. It makes me think too, like the, there's like a level two of just kind of discovering something. I'm, I mean, when I take a photograph, it's almost like the conditions all have to be like, I have to be in the right, the right time and place. And then it just, you know, requires me to be out there, which is, which is something interesting and mm-hmm. a little bit different. Um, you know, cause there's all different capacities that we experience uh, places around us. And I think you hit on something though. The, the idea that media is going to teach you and inform you, I, I think photography follows suit with that quite a bit. Um, you know, again, that change of perspective, being forced to look through the lens and seeing something that you wouldn't normally have appreciated. Um, just like any material and any media, it schools you, essentially. How, how did you wind up then coming to uh, graduate school? Did you go you know, straight away to it? I actually, I actually took three years off. Um, at the time, the economy was was good. I had a job leaving undergrad, managing a gallery um, in West Bloomfield, Michigan, and or it was uh, a good three years. It was an informative three years and helped me decide that that grad school was in fact the right thing. At that time, I was sort of struggling with making enough time for my studio practice, but also toying with the idea of going into education permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty sure that I wanted to teach in higher ed. So I took the three years off before I started looking for a program that might give me some teaching experience to see if that was also going to be a route that was of interest. What was it like, I guess, you know, leaving that academic environment to be working in a gallery? It was a big reality check because as a commercial gallery, seeing behind the scenes on, you know, the, the nuts and bolts on what it takes to keep the electricity on, how much you needed to sell, the compromises that you had to make. Um, you know, the, that first gallery, it was an experience because I didn't always like the artists we were showing by any means. Um, but then there was some artists that we were showing that were amazing, but I wasn't in a place of control um, at that time to be, to be handpicking who I wanted to exhibit. And again, I was a lot younger and my vision was a lot more limited. Um, but I also had the opportunity to volunteer with nonprofit spaces. And, and this was at a time in Detroit and the surrounding suburbs when real estate was so inexpensive, you started to have this concept of the pop-up gallery, um, you know, the temporary exhibit, whether it be an abandoned loft or abandoned building or a burnt out house. Um, the idea of thinking about location uh, and in real estate within the ways that you're making uh, became kind of omnipresent. No, it's very interesting. And so, so it kind of leaves you in this place where you're leaving and going, I want to be able to focus on art and learning how to teach. Well, and making sure it was for me, the teaching side of it, that is, Uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are interested in teaching, but when it actually push comes to shove, you know, whether they actually want to be in a classroom and designing curriculum semester after semester, it's, it isn't for everybody. And there's a lot of people that really, that really want to do it. And the market's so tight now. I mean, you and I have talked about this Mm -hmm. ourselves before, uh, it poses some really interesting problems. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, not only was my interest strong enough, um, within teaching, but that I would do it justice as an instructor you know, do you have the have the patience and the wherewithal to go the distance, uh, but at the same time being really idealistic because I didn't want to give up the possibility mm-hmm. of curating, and I definitely didn't want to give up the studio practice. Sure. Uh, you know, I fancied myself being able to do everything, and it's taken till my mid-30s to realize that, 
you know, there is front and back burners and that prioritization is, is key. And that's, you know, not to be bubble bursting. I'm kind of, I guess, bursting my own bubble, but things didn't start to excel for me until I realized those sort of priorities were a necessity and that I couldn't do everything I wanted all the time as well as I wanted all the time. Well, it's, and that's also something that's very interesting, balancing out the work that you might want to do um, right now, but you won't be able to do for six months or a year because you have some other kind of commitment. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and during this semester, you know, my, my production goes down, the time in the studio goes down, but I'm, I'm lucky enough that I am able to maintain some momentum from summer to mm-hmm. summer. It's, I think it's really important not to let it, um, go still in that duration. Um, and sometimes it might just be working in a sketchbook, and letting things steep and recording ideas and, and thoughts and places that, that are going to be of influence. Um, but I try and keep that practice going during, even during the semester for sure. Right. Well, and so what was it like then to, to go from, it was Michigan to uh, Carbondale, Illinois? I, you, it might as well have been me going to like Jasper, Texas or, or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was night and day. You know, Carbondale, they're like, oh, it's Illinois. I'm like, you know, this is southern Illinois. This is the tip of Illinois. This is, you know, back to that terminology of early south. Right. You know, a lot of the, the folks identified themselves with a more southern sensibility. Mm-hmm. You know, southern history or a ho- southern hospitality within the landscape. And I think that's really when I began to be interested um, in those little nuances of why certain geographic regions want so so badly to associate themselves with one area over another. You know, there's so much terminology, whether we say the Rust Belt, the Heartland, the Breadbasket, um, you know, the Midwest, like there's all this baggage that goes along with each of those areas. Um, it's really fun to see how a place identifies itself within that, that bigger context. But I was, I was going to say that it's really interesting that, too, you know, I, I, ask, I always ask that question, but I always think about it in, in the context of just, you know, the way that you interact with people. So it's very interesting to also talk with someone that really does get affected by, by uh, changing of locations. Um, and so it's interesting to think about how those differences would impact you. But I think it's the only way to learn about a place. Right. To be, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's like a full, unabashed immersion. Um, and so did you kind of explore then, um, you know, Southern Illinois in the same context that you, that you do in your, your current work in terms of uh, research? Is that when it really kind of, you really started to go out on, on, I think you talk about kind of going out on drives and kind of exploring places. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of that came with the freedom of grad school and more, the more open space and, and, you know, beautiful landscape that's, you know, just south of Carbondale. Um, and the the sort of refuse from that landscape, you know, I spent a ton of time. I've got to give props to this junk shop in McCanda, Illinois. It was right outside of Carbondale that I pretty much made weekly visits to with one of our professors, Carol Leffler, um, to gather materials and to see what was left there. Like I would spend time just looking through the books mm-hmm. and, and seeing how people would sign the inside cover of their books. Um, as seeing the disposed of Bibles, you know, I'm not a, a religious person myself, but seeing, you know, dozens and dozens of disposed Bibles that were inscribed on the inside cover with the owner or the birth of an individual or, or for somebody's uh, baptism and, and to see a life that this, that this then, you know, collection of books or Bibles, et cetera, were then resold to 
this junk shop um, for another round of consumption, potentially. Uh, it was really interesting to see that, to how quickly we dispose of our history. You know, somebody must have passed away and the stuff was boxed up and sent off. And, you know, that was somebody's life in there. So I felt that way a lot about a lot of the materials from that I'd find in the thrift stores and antique shops in the area. And they made their way into my work, particularly a lot of old fabrics. Um, something, you know, I, it's, it's hard to explain, but the smell of old fabrics, mm -hmm. it's like there's ghosts inside the fabric. I, I can't give that analogy enough. You know, that was something I think I got more in tune uh, with because of where we went to school in Carbondale. Just really, just really interesting history. It makes me think a lot too about, you know, phys the physicality of things. And I guess because you started with the reverse migration idea, yeah. um, it made me think of like a, a twist on like Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit, what, 451? Yeah, nice. You know, it's like it's <laughs> like we're getting rid of books, not by burning them, but just because we're just not going to print them anymore. And Well, just the idea that the, that the kin of these people wouldn't want to keep. Right. You know, they're the library. You know, granted, a lot of these books weren't necessarily you know, something that I, I would want to keep myself. So I can't point the finger without pointing it back at me, but it definitely became fodder for the work, that sort of sensitivity. Even looking at the people's handwriting inside the cover, where there was a certain romance in that too. Well, and it brings up maybe that idea of identity, which is in your work, that way of kind of exploring your own background through your work. I got the impression that it's not something that's, um, you know, completely defined. And so that that's something that also kind of happens within your work. Yeah, I, w I would say so. Um, you know, at the at the time in grad school, a lot of those inquiries were, you know, on a much more intimate and, and I would say romantic level mm -hmm. as far as the materiality and, and thinking about identity and place in, in my context making work in that particular landscape at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at one's own ancestry and legacy and how that play, plays a role in there. You know, I spoke earlier about coming from a very kind of do-it-yourself household, and it was common with the history of my people. I'm, I'm Swedish and Polish, and you know, I come from a long line of blacksmiths and quilters and, and, and the like. So that's played a, a, a large defining factor in who I became as a maker. But it's since then, it's broadened up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being about, like, maybe a personal iconography and personal politics, it's become... Um, hopefully a lot broader in terms of thinking about nationalism and ancestry and legacy in a much larger capacity uh, and letting current events really play a big role in how that work is, is constructed. Was there, you know, particular experiences where you really kind of felt that influence of being around all these new people? I think you get that anywhere you're at. It's inevitable if, you know, as a, as an artist, I think at risk of being overly generalizing, I, I think we do have a tendency to be open to new experiences mm -hmm. and therefore open to new geographies and the, and the people that are contained within those geographies. So I think, you know, we talked earlier about how there was some good competition in undergrad because you were working with people that might be smarter than you and it challenges you. And that continues on as your education progresses. And, you know, now that I'm teaching, it continues on with my peers and the fellow artists in my town, um, to be influenced by those that surround you, you know, you, you've got to pick to be surrounded by really good things because it's going to happen. You, I don't think it's something the majority of people can or should try and control. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, finding quality locale that, that are going to saturate you in the right way, I, I would say is of paramount importance. We were talking about graduate school experiences and that. So how did, how did that ultimately influence your work and kind of bring you more into what you're working on now? Well, on, on the practical side of a graduate education in the arts, simply being able to be selfish about one's research for a long period of time. Also sort of learning how to network, having a system of support and a community to bounce your, your material questions off of and, you know, the thematic issues. Um, to watch how your, some of your thematic issues were, were common and overlapped with a lot of your peers. As uh, frustrating as some people might find that, I actually found that really refreshing. It was a really important part of sort of validating certain lines of inquiry that I was looking at, which, you know, were domestic life and, and materials, um, you know, some issues within feminism as a, as a maker that works with textiles and, and being concerned about being pigeonholed in those capacities, uh, it was just an exceptionally good circumstance, but I think Carbondale was really good at providing that. Thematically, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it was a much more internal time where the, where the looks at ancestry and nationalism were much more about me and my ego, um, and not necessarily ego in a bad way, but within the objects that were created, you know, I had a, a, a sentiment towards the material, whether it was directly let's say, a quilt that was from my family or, or simply one that I might have found on a roadside. Um, you know, I imbued the material with the same, same degree of importance. Mm-hmm. I wanted objects to overlap with something that could be mistaken for what you might just find in a home. Where since then, it's, it's evolved, like I mentioned, to be hopefully a lot more outward looking mm-hmm. and it kind of embracing current events and, and responding to what's going on in the, in the headlines and without being perhaps maybe too partisan, because I, I think I was dancing around some of those issues within grad school, but it took more time than the graduate education allowed to gain confidence and momentum at exploring those thoughts in a way that people would still want to listen, because the minute you get political, you could really shut down an audience. So things sort of evolved kind of slowly and organically for me in those capacities. Certainly there's that, you know, there's a lot of iconography in terms of connection to the American flag and and that specifically in your current work, which kind of brings up all these ideas of the American dream. But I like, especially in the current work, how it, it kind of... Um, it explores a lot of those different things in, in a way I think that's almost kind of blurry, you know, like, um, there's an abstraction about it all that is really echoed in the work, you know, and I think I, I took note of this specifically with the photographs because, you know, there are some that are very representational. You, you can see them immediately as what they are. And then there's some that are kind of like close ups, and they start to kind of blur those, those boundaries. So they almost seem like this fragment of, of, of the subject. Yeah. But, what work did you really think kind of departed from that, that system of them being, you know, more personal to be something that's, I guess, more universal? To be honest, I think, you know, that confidence I was talking about sort of gaining, um, it happened very incrementally. So I don't think that there was one specific Mm -hmm. work. There was very much revisiting certain pieces and materials like you know, right before graduate school, I found this huge, or actually a friend of mine found this huge box of used stamps, canceled stamps. And 
and I tried to use these stamps in grad school and, and they had some interest. And then when I left grad school at one of my first jobs, I, I revisited this collection of stamps and, I, and I'm talking about like tens of thousands of canceled stamps still attached to the corner of the envelopes with the little squiggly cancellation lines on them and the dates. And these were stamps from the, you know, late fifties all the way through the eighties that somebody collected. So, you know, I talk about these, these games being incremental in how, the myself is formed today as a maker. Like I, I like these stamps as sort of the analogy because they've been revisited in the studio about five different times. Mm-hmm. And there's been several of the later generations of, of these stamp informed pieces that I, that I think are pretty well-rounded and, and relatively finished. And I didn't get that feeling in the beginning. So I also think when I went back to teaching about four or five years ago and began to run the foundations program at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, prior to that, some of my positions um, were primarily curatorial in nature. I worked at Indiana State University as the curator for the University Art Gallery there. And that didn't allow me a lot of time in the studio practice. So some of the evolution didn't halt, but it slowed down during that time because mm-hmm. I was advocating for others as much as I could possibly, you know, stand to do on a day-to-day basis. Therefore, your own research kind of takes a back burner to that. Right. But I would say since I returned to foundations education and, and my schedule is different, that that's evolved for me quite a bit. One of the other things, too, again, is to see the way that that, you know, something winds up informing other work down the road. I know that one of the the things that I remember the most about your graduate show specifically were the you know, the big drapes that you had kind of made out of craft paper. And it's it's interesting to see how that winds up getting resolved in, in other installations like this. Uh, one that I'm looking at now is called Spoonful of Sugar from 2006. Yeah, um, that one was, I re- again, another revisiting of of a project that, that was started in graduate school and I continued at uh, the Medicine Factory in Memphis, Tennessee. Are those experiences also something that you you feel have to kind of influence the work? I guess it kind of continues to evolve from there. You know, it, it never stops evolving because one of the things that strikes me about this presentation too is just the the difference in the location, um, the way that it looks like old. You know, like an old place. You know, or something that's supposed yeah. to kind of evoke that kind of feeling. So it's, it's interesting to think about the way that context and experience really kind of informs the way that you continue to make decisions about your work. Yeah, I, th- I think it took some time for me to understand the importance when, when working in terms of an installation to really give, give equal credit to the, the locale you're working in. And it's, it's really typical for me, like, Lots of hard work beget more hard work beget more hard work. And, and those those experiences, you can't arrive somewhere without doing that work. You know, I've never, I've never been the type to have just, you know, simple moments of that awesome artistic genius you hear about. You know, just every, everything is like, okay, I've got to work this idea through. And sometimes it's terrible. Oh, actually, frankly, a lot of the times it's terrible. And embracing those failures to, to hopefully get to something that people will have a, a, an aesthetic or an emotional response to. It's, it's just a lot, of, it's a lot of work, and anybody that does it regularly totally knows that. I've learned that artists are probably the most neurotic and self-deprecating bunch there is, maybe. 
Um, I don't. Th- I don't know anybody that likes the sound of their voice, for example, or thinks they speak well, <laughs> even if they speak extremely well. But the other thing that it makes me wonder too, to kind of get back to your work, is just the way that you know you combine all these different mediums. How does that process work in terms of exploring your subject? I'd love to be able to say that the that the concept drives whatever material mm-hmm. that's going to be used, but. To be honest, convenience plays a role as well. You know, how much money do you have in your bank account a particular month? What can you afford to go and do? Because I'll be damned if I'm not going to do anything. So I will stretch the practice to to embrace different materials. You know, fabric can be relatively inexpensive. You know, when I was working with cast metals, that wasn't inexpensive. That was a pricey process. So fabric kind of evolved in not just for sake of its own metaphor, but there's, there is a certain convenience in that. I battle some issues with arthritis, to be honest, and that also affects what I'm able to do at a certain time. You know, if I'm struggling to sew some large form in the studio, I can go out with the camera and, and shoot some pictures. Mm-hmm. So it, it's. I'd love to say that it's solely the concept that's driving the material, but I think it has the convenience has a has a role with that, and that might be blasphemous to say, but it's it's the honest truth. Well, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think you know, kind of gets back to something that we were talking about before, the relationship between life, you know, as a person and life as an artist, and and how those things you know merge together, and you know how you manage both, because I think that it's very easy to be kind of ideal in one sense. And then, you know, there's certain realities that we all have to face, but um, to get back to the work though, too, I mean, is it something that you work on a a piece until it's done? Is it something that's in various stages of process the whole time? It's a, it's a total mixture there. I love to have multiple things going at the same time because if I get irritated with one thing, there's something else there waiting. So my procrastination is hopefully a productive procrastination. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll bounce from one problem to another. But to add to that, I think like a lot of us, I look for deadlines and deadlines will dictate finish on occasion. Um, You know, I, I find calls and things I can apply for and grant opportunities and guest artist opportunities or whatever it is to force myself into a decisive mode because certain pieces, you know, you can work on endlessly, but it takes a deadline to really make the choice of of when the thing is finished or how it's going to be finished. Well, and it's interesting because um, deadlines, I think, are especially (laughs) helpful. I think it goes, it speaks a little bit to accountability. You know, we've talked about the hard work that's, that's invested in the sort of the sweat equity put forward as a maker that is not always seen by the general audience. Um, and by committing to those deadlines, it gives you certain like public accountability, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think that I think, and it's also keeps yourself accountable. One of the things that we kind of have been talking about over and over is just how, you know, artists are meant to kind of manage then all these different things. So, could you talk us uh, talk to us a little bit about um, you know this exhibition that you have opening up? But I've got a, a couple exhibits. This is why it gets a little confusing. I have a couple exhibits that have been going to be opening up um, now and the rest of the summer mm-hmm. um, because of some residencies that I've been associated with this past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which that opened last week is called the Gateway Project. It's in the Gateway Center. In Newark, New Jersey. Um, I'm here in Newark, New Jersey for a residency at Solo's Project House, 
which has a, a summer residency program where um, I basically moved to Newark for six weeks and create a body of work that'll open up in an exhibition in September. Um, but as part of the opportunities here, they've been really gracious at booking my schedule really well. I contributed to the Gateway Project, an installation called Austerity, um, and that's going to be open until October 5th. And there's about, I think, 12 to 13 different artists with installations in the Gateway Project. Um, it's a non-traditional space. You could call it a pop-up exhibition. It's in, in a retail office space in the Gateway 2 Center, which is right by Newark Penn Station. So you have about 30,000 people walking by every day. And it's kind of, Newark's a really, uh, been a really interesting place to be working because you're sort of, you're competing with being in the shadow of New, New York for obvious reasons. But the creative community here has been so welcoming um, to be exhibiting with these artists and have the opportunity to do an alternative installation here at the Gateway Center has been pretty great. I believe their hours are Tuesday to Thursday, like 11 to 5 for public access. So if you're in the Newark area or New York, it'd be, be good to come by and see. The other exhibition, which I think you're referencing the Middle Land from, is at S&J Projects, which is a newer gallery space in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The exhibition is called Wish You Were Here, and that opens on August 7th and goes until September 1st. And the reception's also on August 7th from 6 to 9 p.m., if I remember correctly. Um, and it's a body of work that actually spans from brand new pieces to uh, 2009, so it actually shows quite a range. It's just fitting because there there's so many themes in your work, subjects, uh, materials exploration that... I don't know. They all they can all kind of feel really connected. So, what what specifically are are you showing in this um... at S and J Projects? The Wish You Were Here exhibit it shows work with more blatant um, inquiry into nationalism, immigration, ancestry. Um, as the work has broadened up, I've become more and more interested in the notion of impermanence and fear. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking how fear kind of guides us with our personal identities, but also our political identities, um, what we're willing to accept, what we're not willing to accept um, culturally and politically speaking. Um, so that's played a role in a lot of the recent pieces that I've created over the past couple of years. Um, the kind of the title track of the show is a piece called Wish You Were Here, and it's a, a map of the lower 48 of the United States, and it's created with Fourth of July stickers and kind of, you know, just small propaganda. My One of my favorite holidays, Fourth of July, because of all the sort of materials that's created to celebrate our nation. And on July 5th, those materials go on sale. And I'm able to buy kind of lots of, you know, little propaganda-inspired images, lots of great temporary tattoos and stickers and, and things to use in the work. I've also manipulated several U.S. flags. Within that exhibit, there's a two-headed rattlesnake that'll be part of the show. Uh, I'm actually still working on a title for him. Um, luckily, I've got a little bit more time. So I've been, I've been interested in, in sort of seeing how I can procure a conversation with a different audience about what are their politics, what, are, what is nationalism to them, what's it mean to be a patriot and to have pride, do you have to wear it as a lapel pin or can it be something a little bit more of an intimate relationship? 
Well, and it's it's something, too, that reminds me of that idea of commodity in our culture, too, because what happens to all the campaign signs for any party, you know, after the campaign is over? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's it's interesting to think about it, especially because, you know, you talked about that idea of the multiple earlier, too, or at least being drawn to the multiple and having mm-hmm. that in the works. So it's interesting to be making, you know, works from things that are then you're manufactured sometimes. But then also, you know, there's things where you're, you're, uh, it looks like you're making things by hand as well. Are those works going to be featured in this, or is it more a combination of the two? Or it'll, it'll actually be a mixture of some of the works on paper. I call them drawings, but a lot of them would probably be better understood as collages. Mm-hmm. Um, some soft sculptures using the life vest forms and the snake forms, in addition to um, a couple of photographs. Interesting, interesting. And so, you know, one of the other things that maybe we've kind of missed too is that what what kind of uh, responses are you do you typically, you know, want from a, a viewer? I mean, are, are you just looking to kind of engage them in this this discussion that that we've been having? Well, hopefully, it will prompt them to kind of look at the the their own limits and how they view things through kind of a political lens. We all have very intimate relationships with what makes our ideals and our judgment calls on what's going to be right or wrong. Now, whether this is a partisan thing, a party-based thing, or, or otherwise, it's it's kind of neither here nor there for me. Um, I'm trying to take a maybe a little bit of a cynical look, maybe a little satirical look at how we associate ourselves with these, these images. Like, I like when you bring up the idea of commodity, um, because these these things that are supposed to mean so much as far as patriotism, as patriotism is concerned, flags, red, white, and blue, um, other things kind of in the July 4th vernacular, I guess, um, mm-hmm. can really fire people up quite a bit. And I've had good luck at having some really great conversations with, with audience members and, and what their perspectives are. And they've been typically pretty open. Um, now, that might be because this is usually in like an art gallery situation and people usually tend to be pretty open in those circumstances because they want to be there. They want to see things that um, may challenge them and in, in their beliefs. But I'm trying to not do it in a way where I'm being preachy or, or from a pulpit or speaking from a particular agenda or lobbying for an idea. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been weird terrain to be walking on um, and not, not a terrain I'm always successful at walking on, to be honest. But I love the overlapping, like you brought up the, the idea of the handmade several times. I love the overlapping of these mass-produced materials, like these stickers and lapel pins and, and things that are patriotic but made in China, and then bringing the handmade to them in a studio practice. Now, whether I'm working with them sculpturally or on paper, it's I'm kind of indifferent to that. But hopefully it'll be a provocative set of objects to, to increase that dialogue with an audience. I like things that are going to challenge our perspectives, you know, even my own for that matter. Yeah. And I think, you know, it kind of gets back to that idea of just being an artist in general is, is I think a lot about, you know, just communicating, but then, you know, personally to be able to kind of challenge yourself to make new works and, and explore different ideas. And so I think just that, that process is always present when you're going to exhibit it and, you know, you could have anybody walk in off the street and read it a way that you haven't seen it. And so I think that's something that's also very interesting because the, the work, you know, is very universal. It's not like a, it's not like something, uh, 
that people wouldn't know how to respond to, I think. I mean, maybe they, maybe they might need a little time with it, but it's all very recognizable things. And, and you can kind of build, I guess, an idea about, um, or maybe questions about it that you could then use, you know, to, to question your own ideas about it. So it's very interesting to think about those possibilities. Yeah. Thank thank you. I think it is important that the materials are commonplace for that. You know, you're, you're talking about people being familiar with with them. I think that's an important part of potentially having that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want the, the art that alienates or the art that's exclusive or, or mysterious. You know, I, I want something that might have the chance to perpetuate social change and, and growth and not just me, the maker, but maybe the people that come to come to view the work. Do you see it almost as a, as a way to kind of reclaim the handmade? Because, you know, we also spent, you know, a good deal of time talking about Detroit and just the idea of these these places that are kind of disappearing. And so in a weird way, you're you're kind of making these handmade objects from manufactured things, you know, in a time when we, we don't really manufacture things the way that, that we used to. Do, do you ever think of that in terms of the way that you explore your work? I think so, but I... I... I think that first comes from a point of like personal gratification. You know, I, I like working with my hands. Mm -hmm. It's, it's probably maybe a, like a blue collar work ethic that's in me. So the idea of, of man hours on a piece now, whether that's laying down 2000 stickers on a page or, you know, hand stitching closed a couple dozen forms, it's, it's neither here nor there. Like, I think that's kind of a selfish act and that's, that's okay. Like part of the practice can be strictly for my, for my own benefit, but I do think it helps actually highlight the, the manufactured elements, the fact that they're not used without the hand present. And that's just sort of like, you know, a a happy byproduct of that practice. Well, and I think also kind of addresses an idea too, that, you know, there is a level of uh, involvement from someone to, to, to be physical, to make something for them to be creative, because I think that's something that can easily get lost by a, a culture, you know, that doesn't want to take the time to explore it. And I don't mean that just for, you know, you could even just throw that out there with movies, you know, it's kind of the most accessible universal thing that's out there to experience. But you know, if someone doesn't take any time with it to investigate it, you know, they might misunderstand that. And so I, I don't know, it's an interesting, interesting way to explore all of those ideas through your work. Yeah, I like that idea. You're sort of insinuating maybe like, like you're almost nesting with the material as you're working by hand on it, because since it takes such amount of time, you're talking about the time that might need to be spent with a movie. I guess I, I draw that analogy with the material for the same reasons. Like, I learn more about what I'm doing if I slow down and take more time to do it. So I think some of those choices of, of picking very meditative, repetitive, multiplicitous tasks hopefully perpetuate that. So is there is there anything else that you have coming up that you're especially looking forward to? Or? Well, it's it's been really nice to work in Newark in particular and to have so many opportunities kind of sandwiched together in a short period of time because it really gets gets you to understand the community and the and the makers within that community um i'd urge people to come to the gateway project um until october 5th uh if they're in the new new york area on the lower east side on august 7th they could come to snj projects i'll have some kentucky bourbon with me because this girl doesn't travel without some bourbon Um, I'll also be in Birmingham, Alabama, actually, on August 9th for an opening of an exhibition called Pulp, 
which is works with paper and works on paper at Beta Pictoris Gallery, which is the gallery that represents me. They've, they've got a great, great roster of artists. It's going to, I get to exhibit with Willie Cole and Coco Fusco, um, such a great roster of artists to be, to be part of there. It sounds like you're, you're doing a great job at keeping yourself busy. Thank you. Thank you. So. <laughs> my, my philosophy the past year or so has been to say yes more often than I say no. I think we, you know, making work that deals with impermanence and fear, you start to look at your own practice and, and what you're scared of. Um, so trying to come up with ways to say yes to the opportunities that are posed that have subsequently opened more and more doors. It's, it's just been a great adventure, and I've met a lot of supportive people on the way. Case in point, being being able to do the interview with you on Studio Break. That's excellent. And, um, you know, of course, uh, we hope that everybody checks it out. Just had the really happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. Thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Melissa for joining us. Please go check out our website, melissavandenberg.com. But please, please, if you can, go check out her exhibition, Wish You Were Here, opening at S&J Projects this Wednesday, August 7th from 6 to 9 p.m. And the show runs through September 1st, so there's plenty of time to go see it. So please go check it out. I also want to invite you to check out my work, and you can do that by visiting davelinaway.com. There's a hyperlink, and you can also find out about my new project, my Kickstarter, Remembering Place. So please check that out. There's a link on our Facebook page. But there's also an interview with me and Richard Holland of Bad at Sports, episode 414, where we discuss it in great depth. And uh, he's a great interview and, of course, a great podcast. So please go ahead and check that out. Once again, if you're new to Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site. We've got a ton of different interviews up, a lot of great artists. Each of those posts have links to their websites as well as in-depth interviews and images of the work. So please go ahead and check them all out. You can do that using the archive function right there on the left. So go month by month and check out all the great artists that you've missed. If you happen to be like a few hundred billion people and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page there. You can find out about some of the guests that we have coming up. You can see some announcements. Every once in a while we have an opportunity or something arise and we post it there. So please go ahead and check out our Facebook page and like it. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And one of the easiest ways that you can always stay up to date with what's going on at Studio Break is to subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store. Search for Studio Break under podcast and subscribe there. Or you can just use those handy links and find it that way. If you happen to like this podcast, you can help out by leaving us some feedback, some comments in iTunes. It just generally helps with visibility and all the other people out there that love listening to podcasts or have a commute or uh, just want to listen to something while they're working in the studio. So please go ahead and leave us some comments and, of course, share it. If you know anyone that would like to find out about new artists and see it and listen to them talk about it, please share it. All right, that's all the show we have this week. We'll talk to you real soon.